1: From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, could there be an economic upside to the spread of the coronavirus for some in the entertainment industry? And Hillary Clinton talks about a new documentary series that chronicles her life in politics, including her 2016 debates against
2: Donald Trump. Do I turn around and say, back off, you creep? I'm not intimidated by you, which I knew would have polarizing effects. Like, you know, if she can't handle him, how's she going to handle Vladimir Putin? Well, I would add a heck of a lot better than the
0: current guy.
1: That's coming up today on The Frame. We'll be right back.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: While the spread of coronavirus seems to be slowing in China, much of the Chinese economy remains virtually shut down. Add to that concern over an increase in new cases in other places around the world, including the United States, and the impact on the global economy continues to mount. But there might be an upside for those in the business of home entertainment. Matt Donnelly is a senior film writer at Variety. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's talk first about the sectors within the entertainment industry that really stand to lose the most and have lost the most as the coronavirus spreads. Theme parks, movie theaters, how do you rank the list?
3: It's already pretty dire. I mean, first and foremost, take theme parks. You know, the Walt Disney Company's revenue, 47% of that is is, is live attractions and parks. So with international already shut down, uh, many believe that the U.S. will be imminent. That's already half of, of, of their operating revenue, which is pretty staggering. Um, from there, you know, if you look at a market like China that has such a booming middle class, um, you know, cinema has really become ingrained in the culture. And, you know, any number of factors point to just how valuable that relationship is uh, to the Hollywood studio. Studios. And, you know, the projections as of today are around $5 billion in losses uh, even into the next coming couple of coming months. And who knows if, if this continues any longer. So I would say it's sort of just like a numbers game and, and certainly a domino effect. And again, we're not looking at just China. Um, you know, the theaters are padlocked there, but now we're seeing rapid spread in South Korea, in Italy, in Japan, and Japan, and who knows where it's next.
1: And those are all huge markets for Hollywood films. China is the most important market outside of North America. For Hollywood, all 70,000 screens in China are closed, and it feels like now that there are upcoming films, including the next James Bond film, Mulan, that might not get released
3: internationally on schedule or maybe
1: not for a while. What have we heard?
3: Yeah, it's a really interesting dilemma because, uh, you know, there's— people, I think, you know, the World Health Organization and, and, and governments are sort of operating under the assumption that this will be resolved. So in that, you know, scenario, the exhibitors worldwide are really eager to have Hollywood hold these movies so that it can encourage a global population who is terrified to come back to theaters, you know, to bring their children, to bring their friends, to go out on date night. Um, and that's not really something viable, uh, you know, if Hollywood is looking to, you know, make a cash grab and to attempt to recoup some of the losses they face with those titles, like you said. Not to mention, you know, Fast and Furious this summer. You know, there's a new Minions movie, which is a huge family draw. Um, so I, I think that they're kind of looking down the barrel, either an economic meltdown or a huge PR crisis. You know, as as a global population sits terrified. Um, but I think for now, everyone is watching and waiting. It's sort of a game of chicken between, uh, you know, the mainland China government and the U.S. As is the same for you know other territories that be- become affected by coronavirus. But I think eventually, because these you know companies have um, obligations to shareholders, they're going to have to look at different ways to explore bringing in that revenue and that is mostly like you said uh through home entertainment because people will be isolated
1: we're talking with Matt Donnelly at Variety about the impact of coronavirus on Hollywood. Let's talk about, and it's I feel almost conflicted saying this, one bright spot, and that is Netflix. Over the past week and a half, as concerns about a global pandemic have accelerated, the stock of Netflix has outperformed the broader market by about 17 percent. And if you look at Netflix compared to Disney, Netflix is up almost 25 percent compared to Disney. It feels like that might be a safe haven for people who are worried about going out and being in big crowds like movie theaters.
3: Absolutely. And this is one of the instances where being sort of the first in their field is is really sort of paying off, if that doesn't sound so morbid to say. But, you know, having a legacy brand in the streaming space like Netflix – um, You know, I think there's something really comforting and reflexive about watching it, even, you know, if there's a blizzard keeping people in on the weekend or when there's nothing better to do, Netflix sort of is that is that place you turn. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that is definitely not just a good market indicator, but sort of a comforting ritual as the U.S. braces with the idea that we might all be soon locked indoors.
1: I think it's also possible that network television is going to get a bounce as well. And I'm wondering if movie theaters become... Maybe too dangerous. Is it possible that Disney, for example, could start taking some of its movies to its streaming service and bypass theaters completely? Is that a potential outcome?
3: Absolutely. You know, you bring up a, a great question that is a long sort of gestating battle in Hollywood, which is a conversation around release windows. Typically, American movie theaters get exclusive rights to new premium movies for at least 90 days before they head to streaming video on demand, before they go to Netflix, before you can maybe uh, see them on television. But I think a crisis like this sort of gives a, uh, a morbid opportunity to explore how you can break those windows and get content right to the consumer. It's something that they actually did in China uh, in early February after they locked down the entire country. Uh, There was a huge film that was uh, set to debut in theaters there called Lost in Russia that the government simply posted online and up to 600 million people watched it. And it was not monetized. It was sort of like, you know, a national sedative for the crisis that had come. So I could see similar things like that happening in the U.S.,
1: Now, part of our job requires going out into theaters and being with crowds. I'm not one to worry, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering in your newsroom, other people you talk to who work in the field, are they starting to have second thoughts about going out, seeing movies or attending? There's a big movie convention at the end of the month in Las Vegas for movie theater owners. Are people starting to say, maybe I don't need to go do that?
3: Yeah, I think that journalism is not a business that is immune, no pun intended, to this sort of, you know, fear and anxiety. Um, and, you know, also, we're balancing our obligations as journalists, you know what I mean? We have to, I think, I have an obligation to report to our audiences, um, just sort of how people are responding. But, you know, our our newsroom, like all others, are sort of trying to stay in compliance with the CDC, and it's an ongoing conversation. But, you know, nerves are really high. Uh, you know, next week, I'm scheduled to leave for South by Southwest, uh, which is an annual conference in Austin that, uh, you know, a lot of people have already pulled out of, you know, Twitter, Facebook have, have removed their activations that are ordering their employees to stay home, or at least in Twitter's case. Uh, so these are sort of to the minute ongoing conversations that, yeah, it's you know, there have been more relaxing times, I can say.
1: Matt Donnelly is a senior film writer at Variety. Matt, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
3: Thank you, John. Stay healthy. Coming up on The Frame,
1: Hillary Clinton has a lot to say in a four-part documentary about her. Gee, I wonder why Hulu scheduled it to drop this week.
0: Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: A new four-hour documentary series about former First Lady, U.S. Senator, and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton premiered in January at the Sundance Film Festival. It's called Hillary, and it debuts on Hulu on March 6th. Filmmaker Nanette Burstein combined behind the scenes footage from the 2016 campaign with new interviews to tell the story of Clinton's personal and professional life. I spoke with Clinton and Burstein in front of an audience at Sundance.
3: The director of Hillary, Nanette Burstein, and the truly remarkable subject, Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton.
1: Hillary, Nanette's pitch was to interview you and other people who worked on the campaign and are close to the campaign and close to you. What was the story that you wanted to tell through those interviews that maybe the footage couldn't tell?
2: You know, John, I have to take my mind back to when um, Nanette basically proposed making this bigger than uh, the campaign. and really focusing on my life, but using my life as a springboard into the women's movement, our political system, and these other themes. And I obviously knew I'd be interviewed. I was interviewed for 35 hours. But, you know, she had free reign to interview anybody that would interview with her. Um, And so you'll see people, literally, that I grew up with or that I went to high school or college or law school or that were colleagues. And then a lot of people that, you know, she chose to interview to fill in, uh, the story. Uh, so I, I was, um, on board.
1: Were there certain people that were hard to get to go on camera and who would you put at the top of that list? And even within that list, who are the people that really presented you with the greatest challenge in terms of how you're going to ask difficult questions?
4: Well, the hardest people to get were all of the conservative voices. Um, We went out to 30, 40 people that overlapped with Secretary Clinton's life from the 90s onward, um, from Newt Gingrich to Lindsey Graham to even more moderate uh, politicians like Susan Collins, Olympia Snow, and they just all said no, and uh, you know, and I would follow up too, because I am not very good at taking no as an answer. <laughs> and uh, like, for example, Newt Gingrich, who I was really, really wanted to include his voice, whatever, you know, however interesting that would have been, um, because he was a big part of her time as first lady and being on the opposition and leading that charge. So uh, I you know, we sent a letter formally, and his sister does his PR, and they you know very diplomatically said no and then someone gave me a cell phone number and I called him <laughs> and I couldn't believe he picked up I was like oh hello I'm like you're I, you are do not know who I am you don't know this number but and then I just launched into my pitch and he's like oh yeah no I know I know what your uh your offer was and he said I would rather stick a needle in my eye <laughs> I said okay uh I don't think there's a lot of convincing to be done now
1: Hillary, there are so many slights in this film. It's like bleeding to death from a thousand paper cuts. The little things that are said in passing that seem in isolation terrible, but in accumulation horrific. And and that's the idea of how women law students were treated at Yale. The judge who asks you to twirl around while you're at the podium. There's a line that Chris Matthews has that I won't even dignify by repeating. A TV announcer calls you the ambitious yuppie from hell. All of those little things over the course of the documentary, to me, made a very lasting impact of what is casually said but is so hurtful.
2: You're right, John. (laughs) And um, I think Nanette did a masterful job of weaving that in because, again, it's not just about me. And the relentless belittling and demeaning and dismissing Um, is often either ignored or absorbed in a way that you don't fully appreciate the impact of as you move through your life. So one of my concerns is, you know, you have to develop such tough skin. You don't want to be um, battered uh, and hurt, uh, broken by a constant belittlement but you also don't wanna be so impervious that you can't uh, absorb whatever legitimate criticism might be coming your way. So very early on, I kind of developed this mantra to uh, take criticism seriously, but not personally. Uh, That doesn't include the harassment and the insults because that's in a different category. Uh, but a lot of the language that is still used today uh, about women in the public arena uh, has uh, the same impact and I, I just hope that this uh, I hope that this documentary, as people watch it, will spark conversations like the one we're having, so that it's not off limits to say, "Wait a minute, you know why why is this still part of the uh, ongoing dialogue about women's roles and women's rights and of course I think we're going through a real backlash so I think the conversation is even more important.
1: I don't want to quote Bart Simpson in such a serious conversation but I'm going to.
4: <laughs> please do, please do.
1: Bart Simpson says, and he's didn't make this up, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And there's a moment in the fourth episode where you're in a debate And Donald Trump is stalking you. He's physically behind you. And in the documentary, you say in real time that you're aware that he's standing behind you. And as you're speaking about some very important issue, you're playing out all these scenarios. What would happen if I turn around? I can't because this is how it will play. But what if I ignore him? This is how it will play. And that seems to be a constant theme throughout the documentary that if you go one direction, people will criticize you for doing that and another group of people criticize you for not doing it, that you're stuck at so many points in your life that any decision is going to have a polarizing effect.
2: Yeah, because you know that word polarizing, I I think about it a lot um, because clearly it's often the way that I'm described. Is Newt Gingrich described as polarizing? He may be described as a lot of things, but he's hardly ever described as polarizing. And you know, I look at these political leaders, predominantly on the Republican uh, side, and I think, well, what is so polarizing about me that it's a word that is used in practically every interview description that you can imagine? So part of the challenge I think this documentary poses to people is to say, well, wait a minute. You know, when I was taking that law school admission test that we talk about. um, I was with a group of young women that I went to college with, and we were in this huge lecture hall at Harvard, because that's where the test was going to be given. So we're sitting there waiting for the test to start. And the comments that were directed at us were not exclusive to me. It was, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you taking this test? If you go to law school, you'll take a place and I won't get a deferment and I'll go to Vietnam and I'll be killed and it'll be your fault. This is before we take the test, right? (laughs) And so, you know, at that point in my life, I didn't respond because I wanted to do well on the test. So put your head down, do the work. That's what all the young women at this one table where we were all sitting together, all did today, I'd say, get a life. Get over it. Who do you think you are? Now, that would make me polarizing, right? So, so I I think that there's so much that we're still working out. And the incident that John just referred to in that second debate, you know, I knew exactly what he was doing. You know, it was alpha male writ large. You want to know what a president looks like? This is what a president looks like not this woman, not this girl, and I'm gonna show you how dominant I am. And so I'm up there and I'm going, okay. I know exactly what he's doing, what do I do? Do I turn around and say, back off, you creep. I'm not intimidated by you, which I knew would have polarizing effects. And it would also raise the issue, like, you know, if she can't handle him, how is she going to handle Vladimir Putin? Well, I would add, a heck of a lot better than the current guy. Um, So, you know, because, you know, I've been in the public eye for a long time, but even before I practiced law, I tried lawsuits and all that. I have worked with and against countless men who come in all sizes and shapes, all sorts of hairstyles (laughs) and they're judged on who they are. But when a woman walks into that arena, everybody unloads on her every single feeling or reaction that they have about women in the public eye. So what I did, if if those of you saw it, was do nothing, you know, just like I did back when I took the law school test. Just do the job. And hopefully people will say, hey, you know, I'd rather have somebody who is not acting like that uh, dealing with the serious problems we have in the world.
1: Coming up on The Frame, more of my conversation with Hillary Clinton and Annette Burstein.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: Let's get back now to my conversation with Hillary Clinton and filmmaker Nanette Burstein. The former First Lady, U.S. Senator and Secretary of State is the subject of a four-part documentary on Hulu. Bill and Hillary Clinton's complicated marriage is an essential part of the story. And I asked Persine why it was important to include it and what challenges she faced, especially while interviewing former President Bill Clinton.
4: Well, I thought it was important for several reasons. I mean, one, they uh, have been partners in many ways for 50 plus years. So part of it was a love story. The other thing, you know, we do spend a half hour of the series on the impeachment, the Monica Lewinsky incident, and we really, I tried to deal with it very much from a a personal perspective. Um, And not because there's this salacious interest, but because so much of Secretary Clinton's life following that was judged in her perception, particularly if she was running for office, when she was running for Senate, when she was running in 08, and very much when she was running 16. I can't tell you the number of educated, liberal female friends of mine who would say to me, oh, I can't vote for her. She didn't leave her husband.
1: Hillary, what is it like watching that footage of your husband offering up his explanation, rationalization for what he did with Monica Lewinsky and about how I think it's fair to say that you are paying the price for his sins?
2: Well, that's pretty dramatic. Um, <laughs> well, I don't, you know, you couldn't have done a documentary about my life and not done a documentary about uh, my marriage. And uh, like every marriage I know, we've had ups and downs, uh, but ours have all played out in public after 1992 or so. You know it was it was difficult. Uh, you know, talking about it, answering questions, you know that that is you know, not my favorite way to spend the afternoon. Uh, But I was uh, very committed to being as forthcoming as I could be in uh, working with Nanette, and uh, Bill was too.
1: I saw you at Brian Fogel's new movie, The Dissident, about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And a large part of that movie is about social media and about how Saudi Arabia controls the country by controlling social media. And it feels like one of the takeaways from this documentary is the ways that sh- social media can be used and misused in an era where facts and lies are almost interchangeable. So when you think about some of the takeaways from the documentary and with this other movie Fresh in Your Mind, how do you see a path through that where we're living in what I think we can call a post-factual world where you can post Twitter, uh, you can create Twitter accounts that don't represent anybody or may actually be you know, created by foreign governments?
2: I think this is one of the most important uh, questions that we all have to try to both face and answer. We are um, awash in disinformation, and right now, I look at the 2020 election and I see so much of what happened in 2016 being repeated, but it's more sophisticated than it was in 2016. I think you know voter suppression, of course, is going on, but you know, the hacking and the weaponization of information, uh, the, the false information, the propaganda, the deep fakes, which will come into their own uh, in this election season, uh, the not just permission, but the profiting from uh, false advertising. Uh, it, it is incredibly dangerous. And this, this is serious stuff. And we obviously don't have a government right now that cares about it. In fact, they think it advantages them. Uh, And the tech companies seem unwilling to shoulder the full responsibility, in particular Facebook. So I'm really worried about where all this leads.
1: Hillary, the end of this documentary, and I'll share a personal story, left my wife and I in a spirited debate. I found it somewhat pessimistic. She found it optimistic. (laughs) Um, But in terms of what you think are the takeaways, what do you hope people take away from it, and how would you assess that optimistic,
2: pessimistic take that my wife and I had? That's fascinating, John. Um, I don't want to polarize your uh, maybe family. Um, it's already polarized. Oh, well. Uh, I remain fundamentally optimistic, because I really can't believe that we're going to uh, destroy the greatest experiment in uh, self-government that the world has ever seen. I just can't believe that. And so I don't believe it, and therefore I wake up every day thinking about what more do we need to do to protect what has worked and to fix what has not. And so for me, I think there are several takeaways. One, I do hope that there is a debate about women's roles and women's lives and the progress we have been uh, making, but you know some of the remaining uh, challenges that we face. I also hope it sparks a conversation about our politics. Um, how did we get to the point where uh, we literally cannot make the decisions that will protect uh, our planet, um, create more economic opportunity, uh, provide you know universal health care? I mean. I think we have a huge existential decision to make this November. And I've said, I said it yesterday, I'll say it again, whoever the Democratic nominee is, get behind that person. You've got to be committed. Nanette
1: Perstein, Hillary Clinton, thank you for sharing your film and your time with us. Thank you. The documentary Hillary debuts on Hulu on March 6th. And that will do it for today. I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center.